is a coordinated activity happening across this nation. And so we are in a state of emergency. Black people are dying in a state of emergency. We cannot look at this as an isolated incident. The reason why buildings are burning are not just for our brother, George Floyd. We're, they're burning down because people here in Minnesota are saying to people in New York, to people in California, to people in Memphis, to people all across this nation, enough is enough. And we are not responsible for the mental illness that has been inflicted upon our people by the American government, institutions, and those people who are in positions of power. I don't give a damn if they burn down Target. Because Target should be on the streets with us calling for the justice that our people deserve. Where was AutoZone at the time when Philando Castile was shot in a car, which is what they actually represent? Where were they? So if you are not coming to the people's defense, then don't challenge us when young people and other people who are frustrated and instigated by the people you pay, you are paying instigators to be among our people out there throwing rocks, breaking windows and burning down buildings. What's going on, y'all? What's going on? This is Kyle Means, editorial director of WeAreRegalRadio.com, War Media, that the franchise keeps on building. And uh, today I have a special guest I'm welcoming to the fold here with our show on War on Anchor. Uh, it's a, a very uh, accomplished, uh, sort of maybe you could call it an institution uh, unto his own self uh, in Minnesota, in the Twin Cities area, and um, you know, I'm speaking to him in the wake of so much uh, that's gone on in Minneapolis. Really, the 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 match point for the uh, that sparked this whole thing that we're going through right now with this nation. An amazing, uh, you know, amazingly heartbreaking time, a tough time going on right now. But it, you know, it all started in Minnesota. We can't lose. Well, it started previously to Minnesota, definitely. But right now, you know, Minnesota set it off, and I'm, I'm glad to speak to this man, Ray Richardson, who's on the line. <coughs> Excuse me. Ray is a a longtime sports reporter, a, a DJ, a radio personality up in the Twin Cities. Uh, a founding member of the uh, Sports Task Force of the National Association of Black Journalists, which is why I know him best through. And, um, yeah, just uh, a, a man who knew George Floyd specifically and personally. And uh, we uh so glad to have you on the line uh, with me, Ray. And 
you know, at this at this time, at this uh, tough time right now, you know, if you could just start off by giving me some of your your overall thoughts on the situation right now. How is it up in, in Minneapolis? Uh, how has it been today? Because it's, it's, it's interesting because so much of the attention has now been set towards other cities and stuff. And, you know, the protest and, and you know, uh, rioting or looting, however you want to put it. But, uh, you know, Minnesota, you know, for, in some ways had to fall back a little bit from the story that began up there. But, and, you know, from your point of view being up there, what's it been like these past couple of days and such? Well, first, hey, Kyle, nice to, uh, nice to meet you and thanks for having me. As, as far as today goes on, it'll be a little current with you. Uh, there's been a decision made to uh, bring in the, the federal situation in George's case. Uh, they're going to move forward with a civil rights investigation or human rights investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department's um, possible tradition of profiling blacks um, in the wrong way. And uh, that's, that's the one part of the news today. Uh, the other part is uh, they're going to have uh, George Floyd's uh, funeral in Houston they announced that today, but they're going to have a private uh, service for him here on Thursday and then um, take his body back down to Houston uh, for his final resting place. So um, that's where we are at the moment. The In terms of the mood and the atmosphere, things have calmed down quite a bit over the last uh, two to three nights. It's you're not going to see anything burning, uh, I don't think, anymore as we move forward. Um, the city leaders, the politicians, and the government reacted pretty pretty strongly uh, to what they saw the first two or three nights. And they stepped up the police presence, brought in the National Guard, and it's, it's really made a big difference. They imposed the curfews, and uh, that's helped a lot. People are still violating curfews, though, but... The, the tone of the, uh, the protest has really softened quite a bit and things are a lot more peaceful as, as they were intended to be to keep the focus on what really happened and why we're all banding together. For a moment, uh, we lost sight of George's death and that was the most depressing part of, um, of what happened to him is that for about two or three days, we were the whole country was talking about the violence and the destruction and not about the reason why George died or was killed. And slowly but surely, that message is starting to resurface as the protests tend to get more peaceful to put that focus back on what happened to him. There's still a, a major concern here about why the other three officers have not been charged or arrested. That is one reason why the, the protesting is still pretty strong here. Uh, they've been at the state capitol the last two days, even today. Uh, there was also a march, uh, again, in the uh, South Minneapolis area to, to keep that focus on making sure that they bring those other three officers to justice or at least get them in jail. That part has not happened, but uh, I think everybody here is fully expecting those other three officers to get charged. Um, and a key point in that is the Governor Walls appointed Keith Ellison to take over the uh, the case. Keith Ellison is the uh, Minnesota State Attorney General, and he's got deep roots 
in this community, a uh, very well-respected uh, African-American man, used to be uh, one of President Obama's right-hand guys in Congress. Right, yeah. um, he, he has the confidence of the governor to take this case in the right direction, and the community feels that way, too. Uh, but when Keith was appointed to take over this case from the uh, Henry County District Attorney, Keith made it very clear that this will not be an easy victory. This will not be a slam dunk. It's going to take some work. Even though there's a video that shows uh, how George died, it's still going to take some work to get a conviction the way that the community wants. But he's the man that Governor Walls wants in that chair leading the investigation, and a lot of people want him in there too. But he he offered a word of caution that is, even though we got evidence that says that a murder was committed, it will not be easy to bring these guys to justice, but he's going to do everything he can within his power to do that. So yeah. that's where we are at the moment uh, in terms of just some of the legalities and and uh, the latest um, the protesting. I don't see that easing up at all uh, until the other three officers are arrested, but I do see that uh, there's been a definite downswing in the violence and the destruction. Uh, one thing about Minneapolis-St. Paul, it's it's a very diverse community, and there's been support from all sections of this area. Uh, there's just as many white people as upset as we are, and they have been very, very supportive of the cause. So with that with that kind of support, with that kind of diverse support, uh, I don't see how the legal system cannot bring Georgia's situation to justice. Uh, I really think it's going to happen. It just may be a matter of time, but this could be the solution that we've been looking for for a while to finally get some justice in terms of police shootings up here. Yeah, you certainly hope so. And, you know, it's, it's it would seem that this has been a long overdue breakthrough and, you know, finally providing some sort of, uh, you know, reform to the way that the police deal with, with citizens like that and, you know, you just got to hope that maybe Minnesota, maybe there's a reason this happened in Minnesota. You know, you know, you guys can really offer a lot to <clears throat> to uh, set the tone or set a new standard, you know, for one, because of the diversity, like you said, the potential for diversity. And um, also because of the history, you just had Fernando Castile up there a couple years ago. And, yes. you know, I, I, I want on the you to speak on that a little bit about if you could give us some context and being, cause you've been in Minnesota for, since what the, the mid eighties, right? No, I moved here in 1990 from Phoenix. Oh, 1990. Okay. Well still 30 yeah. years. So you've been there a long time. So as a black man yeah. in that community, you know, what is, what has that time been like in, in ingratiating yourself with, with that community and getting to know, you know, I'm sure you, you learn a lot about how black folks have interacted with the police over time and how and vice versa, how the police have interacted with them. And, you know, what, what's what's that experience been like and why, you know, is is, is this something that, you know, when, when George Floyd happened or when, or when Fernando Castillo happened, was this were these events that sent shockwaves through the community up there? Or was it just like, OK, we could see this coming eventually? Or, so, or has it been something that's been happening that people just haven't known about? 
Well, in terms of Philando, and that was a very visible and high-profile case as well. If you remember, um, Philando's girlfriend had it on Facebook Live as he was being shot. And that police officer pretty much panicked in the worst way. By the way, that police officer was not in uh, Minneapolis uh, on that on that staff. He was in a, uh, a small suburb of St. Paul called St. Anthony. So that's on my side of town. I live in, in St. Paul. That case did not generate the, the, the kind of violence and the kind of angry and hatred as this one did. And I'm not sure how to explain that, but I, I know that there was some there was an uproar over the way Philando died. Yes, uh, that was not not accepted in any manner. Um, he was, you know, he wasn't breaking the law, and he was really reaching for his identification. And the guy thought he's reaching for a firearm, which was just totally bogus. But there was a a a system of, of peaceful protesting that really made a difference uh, in that case. Um, now, the officer was was, was charged, but he, he, he didn't get convicted, but there was a substantial civil suit award for his family. Uh, his family got paid out of that in a wrongful death suit. And that was somewhat justification for what happened, but it still left a bit of taste in the mouths of a lot of people here. And then to see to get a visual of George Floyd being kneed in the neck on a street and uh, people seeing that and seeing him actually die, uh, that just pushed people past the edge of tolerance. And in terms of this market, Minneapolis-St. Paul is probably one of the more pleasant places to live um, for black folks and white folks. It's it's a melting pot of people. Um, there's black and white. There's a very strong Somalian community here. Very strong Ethiopian community here. Um, you don't have, like in Chicago, where I grew up at, Chicago is one of the most segregated towns in the country. At least it used to be when I grew up there. It still is. There was certain, okay. And there were certain neighborhoods that you knew you could not be in, even in the daytime, you couldn't be in certain neighborhoods. And especially at nighttime, you did not want to be over there. Yeah. And, uh, just you, not to not cut you of town. Not to cut you off, but right quick. Yeah. One of the big things we're dealing with now in the past couple of days has been, you know, stuff with Latinos shooting and uh and uh assaulting black people who enter Little Village and uh you know, Cicero area on Cermak and stuff. It's like, yeah, this that's I'm sure you can identify with some of that. This is, yeah, it's it's gotten worse now between our our races, our you know people of color than than it is between white and black. The white folks that yeah. you know been rather they've either been supporting or they just stayed out of the way of it down here. But yeah, like like you said, Chicago's very segregated and, and along all racial lines. Yeah, well, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. And and for those of you who might be from Chicago, you'll know this reference. There are no Marquette parks here in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Okay. Uh, you you can go anywhere you want to go and not feel threatened. Um, even in the most densely populated black neighborhoods, you're going to find white people living there too. 
Mm. It's it's a very comfortable place to be. The the only the only time racial disharmony tends to come up is when it involves the police. Mm. And I've been here since 1990, 30 years, going on 30 years. That seems to be the barometer for discussions about race relations here in this town. That's the only time it comes up when there's a police a wrongdoing. And mm. that has sent a message to a lot of people here that there is a culture in the Minneapolis Police Department that is slowly starting to become unraveled. And a lot of things are starting to come up uh, about how things were done in that department. The one confidence I have that this this could be the, the one case that could change things is that Minneapolis, uh, the police department has its first African-American police chief. Okay. Uh, chief Arredondo uh, is very well respected and very well loved by the community here, uh, black and white. Um, he's from here, that's, and that's important. He's from, he grew up in Minneapolis. He's a Minneapolis product. So he understands the pain and he understands the problems that, that the community is talking about. And he's got the support, I believe, now to help enforce some changes in culture in his department. Uh, I can almost assure you that, and the governor has been talking about this throughout the week. Every time he got on a press conference, he made it clear that we need to make some changes. And I don't think we really heard heard it spoken like that here before. There's a definite tone that things cannot stay the way they are anymore. And now it's become such a national issue. You got cities all around the country protesting with us. This is not just a Minneapolis-St. Paul story. This is a nationwide and even global story. I even saw in the news today there was an artist in Syria, Damascus, Syria, painting a mural of George on a on a broken down wall in Syria. Wow! In honor of him, this is in Syria, in the Middle East, where they know they know what what pain and struggling and suffering is. They know it. And yet they're relating to what we're going through over here. Definitely. They're protesting in London. They're protesting in Germany. It's, the word is out that things have got to change. And because of all of this national and international uproar, uh, I think this could be the, the case where, and it's sad that we lose in George to get this done, but I do believe this is the time where you're going to see some significant adjustments in the system. I'm glad you have, you know, being up there and on the front line, and everything. I'm, I'm glad you have that's that sort of uh, positive uh, outlook that you have for the future. And you know, it, it's interesting you mentioned like that artist in Syria, and you know, not too long ago they had the Arab Spring in that area of the world. <clears throat> you know, hopefully we can have something like a, a racial spring here in America. You know, because we need it like. It's, We've just been in in the. It's been like like Gil Scott Harris said, winter in America, like for four hundred years. We never got to this point where we let the sun in and and shine a light on what's what's really wrong with this nation. And it yeah. seems like more so now than at any point. You know, people of all backgrounds and races are are hip to what's going on, and they're like, "This is wrong. We can't have it like this anymore." Right. 
Well, you mentioned Gil Scott Heron, um, and, and I go back to the 60s a little bit myself, but he, he's got a line that is slowly becoming so real today. Uh, the revolution will not be live, it will be televised. And we're seeing parts of that on the screen today. Um, if, if there were people afraid of a, of a revolution or, or the upheaval in culture, they, they're starting to see it now. Uh, we're not, these people aren't talking about trying to overthrow the government and nothing like that, but they're trying to, to get a revolution done to change. And what, what we're seeing on TV now is that people are just tired of uh, people's lives not being valued, you know, like they should, and particularly black lives. So when I see people walking, protesting all around the country, it, it, lets, it lets the people here know in Minneapolis that we're not here alone. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there standing with us, walking with us, protesting with us. But this is where it started, and a movement was created here. And hopefully that movement will result into something that we've all been looking for, and that's total change. Now, I'm not singing, you know, this song of roses and everything's going to be all right in a little while. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. Sure. And uh, the politicians are saying that. But I think the steps are in motion to start that, that wheel of process changing, you know, pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And I know once they get these other officers in jail, and I don't know why they're taking so long, but... I think they need to do that to really give the signal that they're serious this time about, you know, prosecuting uh, a murder and then uh, getting revolutionized with change in that system. And I think that'll help. That'll go a long way. Well, I'm going to ask you now about knowing George Floyd. But right before we get into that, I've heard like some reports about two of the officers fleeing the state. Have you heard anything like that? No, I have not, but uh, you know what? You raise a tremendous point because the longer this takes, these guys could be out of, out of town. I mean, they could be on their way out who knows where. If they're going to be able to find these guys to arrest them, you know, we don't know. I, I was worried about uh, George Chavez. Uh He's the one that had his knee on George, Derek Chavin. Um, yeah. I was wondering where they're going to be able to find him. Um, his house is about maybe less than 10 minutes from me, 10 to 15 minutes from where I live. Oh, yeah, he is in St. Paul, yeah. Yeah, he lives He lives in a suburb of St. Paul called Oakdale. Okay. And they, some, I don't know how the process was found, but they found his house, and they were protesting outside his house. But they finally arrested him, and he's in custody now. But these other three, they've had plenty of time to make a getaway in some kind of way, and... I, I just hope that they haven't waited too long to uh, to bring these guys in. Now, I'm hopeful that they've got these guys under watch anyway, so that when the decision is made to go get them, they can go get them. But right now, no, uh, we haven't heard that yet. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, like I said, uh, you know, I, and I said it before at the beginning. You knew George Floyd personally. You uh, wrote a, uh, a, a an emotional remembrance of him on Facebook and you shared it with uh, the task, sports task force and ABJ. And, um, you know, it was, it was moving to read that and, uh, you know, just interesting how, you know, pe- how, how you're a part of this, you know, in, in a small way, this, this uh, history of this guy, because 
you know, you were you were you helped lead a uh, a program right for uh, uh, getting getting a truck license. The uh, I forget the term. Yes. The uh, yes. C CDL, right? Yeah. And and he. Yes. That was one of the first things that people came, that came out about his history that he was a truck driver. So uh, could you speak about just speak about knowing George and knowing him at this point in his life where you you mentioned that he was in need of a change in life and he had came to Minnesota to better himself and uh, I guess getting a CDL was part of that. Yeah, well, after I, after I retired from sports writing, I got into a lot of community work and one of the jobs I had was at the YWCA St. Paul and one of my functions there was to be a career pathways coordinator and one of my roles uh, in our department was to help run a CDL program and that's to help people uh, get their Class A license to be truck driving. It's a uh, fully funded program where we paid for the training. I mean, it was between four and five thousand dollars to get that license. So, but we had the funding to cover that for people that got uh, that qualified for the program. And in late 2017, that's when I I met George because he was an applicant and. He, uh, he managed to go through all the, the processes. He passed all the uh, background checks and driving history, uh, drug screening, and all that. He, he passed the uh, screening process, so he was in our program. He got his Class A permit with us, and once you get your permit, then we assign you to one of our truck driving schools. And that's where he was uh, for about two months. And But in that time that he was with us, um, I was like his his contact. I was his his coach, quote unquote coach. Uh, I'm the guy that you know guided him through step by step, you know, with the process. And uh, whenever our people needed gas cards, you know, I would give out the gas cards. And he's one of them. Um, all the interactions I had with him were were, were positive. Um, really good guy. Really polite, courteous. Um, very coachable, followed all the instructions, uh, very nice, heartwarming guy. I never had any reason to suspect that he, you know, had, you know, anything to, to be worried about. I mean, he was 6'4 and, and strapped. I mean, he was muscle bound. He, he looked like he could still go to the hoop with some people. Um, you know, really was in good shape. But just his overall demeanor, courteous, calm, you know, Toward the end of, of uh, my association with him, he started missing training dates at the truck school, and I was sort of concerned about that because all the reports I was getting on him before that were positive. He was doing great, getting good remarks from the trainers, and and I would go out there to, to check on the guys, and he was one of the guys I checked on, and I never heard a bad report about him. But I found out uh, a little bit later that he was working at a... I didn't know where he was working at until recently when I found out where he was after he died. But he had a nighttime job, and it was really taxing him a lot. He, you know, it was hard for him to get up in the morning to go do his training assignments, and he wasn't around much after that. But he, I finally caught up with him one day, and, and he said, man, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm, I'm not able to continue the program because i got to make this money, and... He was appreciative of the chance to get in the program. Uh, he was always above board. 
And I told him, man, you know, do what you got to do, but if you want to come back and try it again, because you're not that far from finishing, he was close. I said, just try it again, and you know, I'll, I'll set you up for some more dates. And I uh, didn't hear back from him after that. He, I guess making that money was more of a priority for him, but if he had himself a little more financially stable, at that time, uh, he would have been driving a truck. He would be driving a truck today. And I don't know if he would have needed to work that second job or not. Um, I don't know. If you, if you get into the truck driving business as a driver, you can make some good money as a driver. You could make some 20 to 25 to $30 an hour with the right company. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very <laughs> attractive job to have, and it's a high-demand uh, position because he would not have had trouble getting the job. Um, if he if he could have had got to the point where he was going to take his road test to get his license, oh, he'd have been set. And he was just just that close to finishing, but he he just couldn't finish it. Okay. Yes, yeah, it's, it's 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 interesting because I've known I've known people who've gone up to Minnesota too, and uh, you know from Chicago and they've gone up there with a mind on changing themselves and changing their situation. You know, they couldn't, ha you know, there were things that they were doing wrong here in Chicago and they you know they just need a new start up there. So is, is that, is that something that you hear a lot? Like often with, you know, in particular uh, transplants in the black community up there, like people who are like, Running either running away for some or starting anew in some way. Who oh, to, to make a new start? Yeah, up up there. Yeah, that that's a common theme uh, up here. Um, although I love Houston, I've still been down there a lot. I like that town, but evidently he was looking to uh, start and make a new beginning for himself, and he was well on his way to doing that. I mean, we get. We get people from all over the country that move here because of the um, the cost of living is pretty affordable. There's uh, several Fortune 500 corporations based here. Uh, finding employment here is, is pretty easy. Um, this is a market that can be pretty appealing for families to uh, to raise their kids and, and make money. So there's, there's, there's no secret that Minneapolis-St. Paul is a place where you can really, you know, do some things for yourself and have a very quality, uh, high style of life. It's good here. But things can, can get out of whack pretty quickly when, when the police does some things and, and then the subject turns from quality of life to, uh, to racism and culture problems and things like that. That's the only time we, we tend to get involved in racial discussions up here is when the police is coming. And that's kind of a sad, uh, sad testimony. But overall, this is a, a pretty good place to be, a pretty good place to live. Oh, young people are responding to that. They are enraged, and there's an easy way to stop it. Arrest the cops. Charge the cops. Charge all the cops. Not just some of them. Not just here in Minneapolis. Charge them in every city across America where our people are being murdered. Charge them everywhere. That's the bottom line. Charge the cops. Do your job. 
do what you say this country is supposed to be about the land of the free for all it has not been free for black people and we are tired don't talk to us about looting y'all are the looters america has looted black people america looted the native americans when they first came here so looting is what you do we learned it from you we learned violence from you we learned violence from you the violence was what we learned from you so if you want us to do better then damn it you do better that's uh the voice of ray richardson you're hearing um kyle means we are radio.com uh speaking to Ray on living in surviving in Minneapolis, St. Paul area, where uh, you know so much attention has been put on uh, in recent days because uh, of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd through the uh, the policeman Derek Chauvin up there, and um, you know a lot of things have broken off since then. Uh, you know, our, our nation is ablaze right now, literally and metaphorically. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to make things right. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been very interesting to hear about Minas- living up there in Minnesota uh, through your point of view, Ray, and, and uh, you know, just uh, the whole how everything is up there, getting it from your point of view and from you guys and, and knowing that, you know, good that uh, some positive work is being done on the, on the front line up there is good to know. But uh, I want to speak to you, you know, cause you are, you, you have been a sports writer by trade. Uh, I'm sure you've observed a lot of things that's going on outside of, of Minneapolis, even though it's been so busy up there. And uh, I just want to speak to you on that sports writing level a little bit. Now you're, you're a native of Chicago. You mentioned that. And um, you know, could you just speak a little bit to your history and how, you got from being from Chicago and you made a couple stops elsewhere as well, developing as a sports writer and eventually getting uh, to, to St. Paul and the pioneer press in 1990. How did that, how did that come about? Well, a, a long time back in my history, I always wanted to be a sports writer when I was growing up and on the South side. And after I went to college, uh, Illinois state, got a chance to get my first job at the Chicago Defender. Oh, okay. Um, in, in 1978, that's where it all started at, right there. We were at uh, 24th in Michigan, right there on the corner. Sure. And sure. Uh, that's where I got my feet, right at the Defender. Uh, I worked there six years and then got a job in Phoenix, uh, Phoenix Gazette in 85, and kind of kept rolling, getting a chance to cover more... Um, more big time stuff. Um, got a chance to cover my first NBA season in Phoenix. Got really knee deep into college basketball after that. Um, covered Arizona, University of Arizona, Arizona State. Um, got a chance to go to my first Final Four when I was in Phoenix. And um, stayed out there for five years and Got, a, got some interest from the St. Paul paper, the Pioneer Press here, and came here to visit to talk to them. And one thing led to another, and I decided to leave Phoenix and come here. And I've been here ever since. Um, 
covers Major League Baseball, the Twins, the NBA, the NFL, the Vikings, college basketball, University of Minnesota. Done pretty much everything here. High school sports. Done done pretty much all of it. And uh, along the way, maintain my membership in the uh, National Association of Black Journalists and the uh, Sports Task Force. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Your name that I've seen ever since I've been on the group. And, uh, you know, like real glad that you were able to make some time for me and, uh, you know, able to get to know you a little more. So, you know, really, uh, really admire how you got how you got around to doing the, the things that you've done. I ask, I've been in newspapers as well. I worked uh, in and I worked in Walsall and Stevens Point for Gannett. I, I worked mm-hmm. in that central Wisconsin area for several years. And uh, that's been my major work that I've done. But I've I've been uh, mostly independent here in Chicago since, but uh, yeah, it's it's okay. It's just great to know that there are people like you that are still around that are providing leadership and stuff like that. Well, thank you. Yeah. So, um, I guess there's one more thing before I ask you uh, uh, just a couple more questions about uh sports in general. But uh, what what was it about St. Paul? That or or the, that area, that Twin Cities area, that it, it would seem suited you the most. That that has kept you up there for as long as you've been up there. Well, the the one thing about Phoenix, which I I, I didn't really want to leave because I I love the weather out there. Okay, <laughs> but uh, the the culture out there was starting to fade away for uh, for black folks. I'm I'm from Chicago and and the South Side and. You know, just being black in Arizona that time just didn't didn't uh, appeal to me much. That was around the time they uh, were fighting the King holiday and stuff, right? Yeah, I, I was. I moved there right in the middle of that when the holiday had been taken off the books, and found myself out there protesting with everybody else every year on on King's birthday. We were marching to the state capitol. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't mind that. I, I actually enjoyed that. But um, to be honest. <laughs> When the cable company out there took away BET, that was the last straw for me. (laughs) (laughs) They took away the video soul? (laughs) Yeah, I I couldn't watch BET no more. I mean, they were were closing, you know, black clubs out there. (laughs) Wow, they were really hard on y'all, man. We had a King holiday, so, you know, it it was just, I just felt like I was getting squeezed out there culturally. And and I, I found myself not having things I was used to having growing up in Chicago. It, it was just, it was starting to wear on me a little bit. <laughs> so I bet, yeah. When I had opportunity to move on, I did. But I, other than that, I enjoyed my time there. But when the St. Paul Pioneer Press was talking to me, they were offering me a chance to uh, to get involved in all the major sports here. And it was year-round. Sure. Uh, the one thing about Phoenix, I was busy from like September to March and April, but then in the summertime, it wasn't much to do because there was there were no major sports out there in the summer. Your Diamondbacks went out there yet? There was no baseball there then, uh, and even the baseball was only in the spring for spring training. Right. And and there was no football out there, no pro football. At least the first three years I was there. So it was kind of a, a dead period in the summer, and I, I still like to work a lot in the summer. But I, 
you know, find myself, you know, going on vacations a lot, but I would rather be working. So okay. the job here in St. Paul, you know, the guy that owns sports center was telling me that we got a lot of sports here. They got every major sports here in, this, in the town, in town here. Yeah. And yeah. the college scene was pretty big too. And I, I like that idea of being in a market where I'm going to be involved in a lot of things. And that was the appealing thing for me to come here. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I first got here, they jumped me right into the uh, NCAA tournament. And University of Minnesota was making a strong run that year in 1990. They, they could have went to the Final Four. They were that good. So I was covering them the last month and a half of the season. And uh, I said, well, I really like this. So I'm, I'm going to probably uh, stay here as long as I'm happy. And uh, I've been happy ever since. Who, who are some of your favorite athletes that you covered up there? Well, uh, favorite, I mean, <laughs> I have to say Kevin Garnett is on that list. Sure. Um, in terms of football, I would say uh, Chris Carter. Okay. Chris Carter and uh, Warren Moon came through here for a couple of years, uh, Vikings quarterback. Yeah. Uh, Dennis Green was coaching the Vikings. I was coaching his first year as head coach. I was covering the team then. Um, I enjoyed that, you know, having a first black NFL head coach in quite a while. Yeah. Um, although Archell had got the job with the Raiders right before him, but Dennis came along and was the first one in Minnesota and, and really the first one in the NFC uh, at that time. So that was that was big news here. Then I enjoyed that. Um, I mean, I was around for Jordan's, you know, at least three of his championships. I mean, I didn't have a real close relationship with him, but I was I covered three of his finals. Okay, and it was it was nice to be involved in that. Um, well, you did the game that uh, Garnett and Jr. Ryder described. So, well, Garnett did it at the All Star break this year, but you. you you know the game where Jordan uh, killed him in the fourth quarter after Garnett was talking trash? Uh, you know what? I vaguely remember something like that. Uh, okay. I, I know it, it became a big – because he he, he, he he described it on a podcast uh, with uh, the, all the smoke – Yeah, this, at the All-Star break this year, so it became a thing again, and people looked back at the game. It was, it was like like, you know – you know all the stories we got with the last dance. It was sort of like a preview to that because it was oh. it was it was quintessential Mike. Like you know, you you thought you had the upper hand on him, but then he just slammed you down at the end. It, I said, try to look it oh. up if you can. Was he saying that Isaiah was talking trash to him? No, Jr. was Jr. was Jr. Was, uh, was having a good game. It was in Chicago. Jr. was having a good game, and Garnett. This is Garnett's rookie year. So I don't know if you were covering him that year, but Garnett's rookie year. Yeah, I was. Okay. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, so he yeah, he was Garnett was hype. And he was like, Oh, you ain't doing nothing. You ain't doing nothing, Mike. You kill well, he, he was speaking to JR saying, Oh, you killed him, Mike. You killed him, Mike. And then Mike was overhearing them. And Garnett, you know, yeah, I'm sure you know how good Garnett is at telling stories. He was telling the yeah, story yeah. so vividly and talking. He said Mike was staring right at both of them, staring a hole in them. While he was talking to Jr., he was like, "Okay, okay." At the end of the fourth quarter, he just took over. 
you know, I don't really remember that story, but that sounds about right, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's there's, there's a, um, a lot of examples of Jordan here in Trash Talk, and he pays them back. Yeah, and I, I, I'm not surprised that that happened. I, I know I was at that game because I covered uh, every game the guy that played in in his rookie year. Um, okay, and I know I know that game in Chicago was a kind of a big game because he played high school there. Right. Uh, the Jr. situation. There were so many things going on with Jr. back then. I, I just don't recall that specific case, but if if Garnett told it, it, it had to be true. Okay. Okay. Did you get the cover Moss in you? Randy Moss? Yeah, you got to cover him some, right? Yeah, no, I didn't get a chance to do him much. Okay. Because uh, I was I was doing the NBA thing when he when he was big here. Okay. Okay. But it's, it's still, like you say, it, Minnesota is a great sports area, you know, knowing. It course, is. You know, it is. You know, we often in divisions with them here in Chicago and stuff. And, you know, being, like, so I've spent time in Wisconsin, too, so I got to see, you know, more of the region. The, you know the the western Wisconsin region and, and have bumps up with Minnesota and stuff. So it's, yes, yeah, it's a lot of great athletes come come from there and, and end up there. So that had to be a yeah. great time covering at some those premier athletes like that during that time. I want to throw in Kirby Puckett in there too. I um, don't oh, want yeah. to forget him. Uh, I did spend some time with him. Yeah, it had to have been. I, I, it's kind of a complicated individual, but he was. A great player, another Chicago one too. You guys bonded off yeah. of that. I was, you you bond, did you bond off of being a Chicago one with him? I'm sorry. Did you bond? Did that help you bond with Kirby being Ch- Chicago? Um, <laughs> a little bit, but here's here's the bonding thing. Um. <laughs> When I when I went to their first spring training, my first spring training with them in, in ninety uh, in nineteen ninety, I had got done covering the Gophers basketball team, and my boss told me to get ready, don't don't unpack your bags, but I need to go, I need you to go to spring training. And I had never met Kirby before, um, so they sent me down to help out our main writer with some spring training coverage. So I walk in the locker room, and Kirby looks at me and says, "Wow, what you doing in here?" <laughs> yeah, I, I, ain't no brothers coming through here like that with a notepad. <laughs> and, you know, he was kind of joking about it. And, and he said, where are you from? I said, I'm, I'm from Chicago. And he said, okay, well, you can come over. We can talk a little bit. Um, but he <laughs> he was just more excited to see a black sports writer around. Yeah, I'm sure he had whether to see I'm from, Whether I'm from Chicago or not, I think we probably would have bonded anyway. Yeah, that makes a lot of um, but sense. one of the first things he told me, and I didn't even ask him about this. I was just asking about just some baseball stuff. And he, I get over to his locker and he said, you, you look around here, you don't see too many brothers around here, do you? And I said, uh, no, I don't. Uh, at that time, he might have been one of only two black players on the team. Mm. Uh, but he, he mentioned that point. He brought that up. Okay. Any, anything, before I let you go, is there anything... In, in 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 regards to sports that has surprised you or that has resonated with you in regards to the uh, response to George Floyd and you know I know Stephen Jackson went, went up there he's you know uh, we we've all learned about his relationship with George and but uh you know in, in regards to being either being up there or oh you had the uh, and there also was a story of the Minnesota 
football uh, deciding not to have the police. How, how big a deal would you say that is that they don't want the Minneapolis police uh, securing their games anymore? That uh, that's huge. That uh, that's saying a lot right there. Now, how they're going to replace that that function? I don't know. But they're not the only ones who are cutting ties with them. There are other functions and other agencies that are cutting ties with Minneapolis police. Um, I was surprised to see that at first, but now I'm not. Right now, it is not good to be connected to the Minneapolis police in any way. And I think from a business standpoint, I think people are making business decisions as well as ethical decisions. Um, If the University of Minnesota wants to cut ties with them for helping provide security for their sporting events, that is major. Because that's a pretty big contract for the uh, the city to have them over there, and if they're willing to uh, forego that and maybe get another security detail some kind of way, that that speaks volumes. And now, and now there's some other people doing it too. Uh, I just saw some other organizations cutting ties with them as well. Well, that's got to make the po. You got to think that make the police department think more about itself and what it's done and what it continues to do. You, you have to hope that at least. Well, I, I just hope that that uh, Chief Arredondo can get things back on track as soon as he can because ultimately these, these kind of um, revolts and, you know, cutting contracts, it, it's going to fall back on his shoulders eventually. He's going to have to figure out a way to get some of this business back. And you would hope that things settle down for his sake because he wants to do the right thing. And I'm sure the community is going to support him. So hopefully these these uh, these setbacks and cutting contracts are only temporary. Because if, these, if this becomes widespread, it's going to really make his job a lot harder. And we don't, we don't really want that. We want to see him succeed. Okay. Okay. Well, um, Mr. Richardson Ray, <laughs> just thank you so much for. I, I'm almost. We are, I told you I was gonna keep you for a half hour. It's about fifty minutes now. I'm sorry. I hope hope I'm not keeping you from anything. But thank you so much. No, I'm good, man. Yeah. I'm good. Thank you so much for uh, talking to me and giving me uh, this great this great perspective on the ground from up there in Minneapolis. I wish you the best, and I uh, hope you and your city recovers well. Uh, you know, from this and, you know, hopefully shine, I say, uh, just be a beacon for for progress racially and and socially for all of us because we all need, we need better examples out there. Well, I appreciate that, Calvin. Thanks a lot for having me, man. Uh, best of luck to you and continue success in all the work you're doing, too. Thank you very much, sir. Have a good one and I'll uh, see you online and, uh, so maybe we connect again sometime and, and talk more about your uh, ball, you know, sports in general and your history because I've, I've seen you got a lot of great stories. Thanks a lot, Kyle. I look forward to it. All right. Ray Richardson, you All right. All right. You too. And uh, just really appreciate having a guy like him still, you know, having, having so much history 
that he's had is so much uh, experience that he's around and that he's willing to, you know, give a person like me time. You know, really appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, just uh, there's a lot of guys out there like that, men and women out there like that have been on the front lines fighting battles, been fighting battles in his industry and, you know, but fight battles in amongst the people as well. Like you said, going back to protesting about the Martin Luther King holiday in Arizona, man, it's, it's crazy how many of these battles we still got to fight, but, you know, they're there and, you know, let's, uh, you know, give praise to those who've already fought and continue to fight and let's just try to, uh, you know, live up to their, their example and standard. But, uh, that's it for me right now, man. I'm uh, I'm head out. About to do this wartime session on IG. If you don't know about that, check out WeAreRegalRadio.com uh, and We Are Regal Radio on uh, IG, and uh, you can see the info about that. I'm going on there just to just to speak. You know, I'm let my mind off about some there's some things on my mind about some things that are going on and uh you know if you want to do the same feel free to join me you know comment or you know maybe even might bring you on with me on the live and uh you know we could uh talk face to face so you know you know if you if you up for it you know i'll at me but uh yeah this is it for me right now kyle me signing off war media i, I recall yeah. the moments in which during the reagan years there was a few of us out there in the 60s, you had masses out there. Now you've got a younger generation of all of these different colors and genders and sexual orientations saying, we won't take it any longer. But you know what's sad about it, though, brother? At the divas level, it looks as if the system cannot reform itself. We've tried black faces in high places. Too often our black politicians, professional class, middle class, become too accommodated to the capitalist economy, too accommodated to the militarized nation state, too accommodated to the market-driven culture tied with celebrity status, power, fame, all of that superficial stuff that means so much to so many fellow citizens. And what happens? What happens is we got a neo-fascist gangster in the White House who really doesn't care for the most part. You got a neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party that is now in the driver's seat with the, with the collapse of Brother Bernie. And they don't really know what to do because all they want is show more black faces, show more black faces. But oftentimes these black faces are losing legitimacy too because the Black Lives Matter movement emerged under a black president, black attorney general, and black homeland security, and they couldn't deliver, you see? So that when you talk about the masses of black people, the precious poor and working class black people, poor and working class brown, red, yellow, whatever color, they're the ones who are left out, and they feel so thoroughly powerless, helpless, hopeless. Then you get rebellion. And we've reached the point now, it's a choice between nonviolent revolution. And by revolution, what I mean is the democratic sharing of power, resources, wealth, and respect. If we don't get that kind of sharing, you're going to get more violent explosions. Now, the sad thing is that this neo-fascist moment in the White House, you got some neo-fascist brothers and sisters out there who are already on. They show up there in the U.S. Capitol, and they don't get arrested. They don't get put down. Well, that's, that's the president. That's extraordinary.